They call these thin times. Cantor Kahana referred to this in her opening remarks, the time of the new moon, the time of the changing of the seasons. In some traditions, this is the day of the dead. In the Christian tradition, in the Christian tradition, we call this the feast of all souls, the feast of all saints. And far longer than there have been Christians to, you know, baptize holidays like this in many pagan religions, this was the time of Samhain, the time in which the dead seemed particularly close, a time when the barriers that separated the living from the dead seemed very thin indeed. These are the times, um, these are the times of vision. And we've got some visions tonight. There's a story that's told by the Catholic community in Vietnam about a vision, an apparition that occurred in the rainforests of Vietnam at the end of the 18th century, a time when Catholics in Vietnam were experiencing persecution and many were being killed by the government for their beliefs. A small band of the faithful had escaped into the dense rainforests outside a little, a little village called Lavang. And some of them had been bitten by snakes. They were becoming dangerously ill. It was a little bit like the story of the people of Israel in the book of Exodus, following Moses and Aaron through the wilderness. And in Lavang, the people gathered at the foot of a tree to pray and to seek God's healing. And late one night, a girl appeared in the branches of that tree, a young woman, really. She held a small child in her arms. She was dressed in the Aodai, the traditional dress of the Vietnamese people. She brought no warnings and she uttered no threats. She showed the people the leaves of the tree under which they had gathered. They were gathered under a jasmine tree. And Mary, the Virgin Mary in the tradition, Mary showed the people that these leaves could be boiled for tea that would make them well. She came bringing the leaves of healing, the, the balm of Gilead, if you like, the sweet smell of jasmine leaves that led her people home. I love this story. This story is my favorite of all. The, there's lots of stories in the Christian tradition about Mary showing up all kinds of places. She shows up all over the place. But I love this one for, for a couple of reasons. Usually in the Christian tradition, when Mary shows up, she, um, she almost always looks and speaks and dresses like the people to whom she appeared. In Lavang, Mary came as a Vietnamese girl. And I think that's really important. This young Jewish girl, Maryam, in our scriptures, would have been a Jewish girl, but she has a thousand different faces. She's always indigenous. She is always among us, not a commanding figure, not a fearful figure, apart from our reality, but one deeply enmeshed in our reality, of our flesh, if you like. And I love that in this particular story, Mary does not come to punish, and she does not come to warn. In many Marian apparition stories, Mary comes with a warning, right? Pray your rosary children, or Santa's not going to bring you any presents. Some Marian version of that. But not Our Lady of Lavang. In Lavang, she comes to heal. She comes in response to the cries of God's people, the cries of pain and anguish and fear that each one of us has, I suspect, a much more intimate experience of than we may have two years ago. So much death, so much destruction, so many things that we took for granted, a whole world that seems to have shifted under our feet overnight, and we wonder, or at least I wonder, you know, how much of that world that was, how much of the world of before, the world that used to be, I wonder sometimes how much of that world can ever come back. I wonder, too, how much of it should come back, right? Rabbi Kahana referred to this. So much of our before world was a pretty toxic place for a lot of people. It was a world that was marked by 
inequalities and injustice and long-standing assumptions about race and gender and sexuality, a world in which a few white guys at the top seemed to wield an awful lot of power. So I don't want to go back to the way things used to be. At the same time, I long to go back to the way things used to be. I remember those days, they were not that long ago, when I would walk into this cathedral on a Sunday morning, I would switch on the lights, and a couple hours later, 600, 700 people would file into these pews, and their voices would raise in song and prayer. Sometimes communion would take us, like, forever. It would take, like, half an hour. And I used to get so frustrated, like, why is this taking so long? Can we, like, get, we've got brunch to get to. Like, let's make through this. Nobody wants to sit in church for an hour. Like, let's get on with it. I took so much for granted in those days. And something has changed recently. Like many of you, I suspect, I, I went back to the symphony a couple weeks ago. I was back inside Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall the first time in 20 months. And I remember when I was eight or nine being taken to that building, the old Paramount Theater, right? My grandfather had seen silent movies there in the 20s. My parents saw the sound of music there when it played for seven years in 1965. And when I was six or seven, my parents took me to hear a famous pianist play with the Oregon Symphony. And I don't remember anything about the program, actually. I remember walking into that room. I think it was the biggest room I had ever experienced at that point in my life. And I was overwhelmed by the, the ceiling. I remember the ceiling and the box seats, the size of that stage, that orchestra. And somewhere along the line, right, I grew up, I experienced a bunch a bunch of other concert halls, and I, I forgot that feeling. I forgot that, that sense of that building that used to awe me and bowl me over with amazement. For several years before this all happened, before the shutdown, my now ex-husband and I had season tickets for the symphony, and we, there came a point where we, you know, we, it almost became a chore. Like on Monday night, it would come around, and we were so exhausted after a long weekend of church. I remember once my ex-husband saying to me, like, do we have to go to the symphony tonight? Do we have to get dressed up? And, drive downtown and find parking and sit through a concert. I think, I know the music's gonna be beautiful, but I think I'm gonna fall asleep during the Sibelius. Like, could we stay home and listen to the radio? <laughs> we took so much for granted. Some of you were there last night when Yefim Bronfman played the Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto. Go, if you haven't seen it. He'll, he'll play again tomorrow night, it's the last time. It's an incredible concert. I actually, I suspect that more than Trinity Cathedral, the Oregon Symphony, at least in terms of Jews and Christians, is probably our shared religion. That's our shared space, right? Between like the people at Trinity and the people at Beth Israel, that's where we come together. It's kind of like we are tonight. And what happens when we gather in the sacred space that is Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall is something that transcends religious language, divisions of creed or belief, the power of, I mean, what is that? 72 players, 80 players breathing together playing together, absolutely in sync. This music that has survived like the horrors of the 20th century, music that got our ancestors through the First World War and the flu epidemic that killed millions of people after it, through the Second World War and the atrocities of that time, through genocide and political unrest and countless deaths, millions of lives upended by violence and hatred and mistrust. And through all of it, right, we're hearing some of it tonight, it's music, right? It's music that brings us together, Jews and Christians and people of faith, people of no faith at all except the, the very powerful faith in the power of the human creative spirit to make something beautiful in the face of unimaginable horror. So there was this moment last night, I heard it at the end of, it was actually the encore, Bronfman played this beautiful, you know, he's just done the Rachmaninoff third piano concerto, fingers flying all over the place. Comes back for his encore and he plays this beautiful, simple, I think it was a Chopin nocturne, something delicate. And at the end of the piece, 
you know, the, the notes kind of taper off and he just kind of let his hand like kind of cascade off the edge of the keyboard and he held the audience in silence for, I mean, it felt like forever. It was not actually that long. Spellbound in this moment of absolute grace. That's the moment that our shared tradition sometimes remembers. We sometimes tell the story of Elijah on the mountain, right? You know the story. God was not in the whirlwind. God was not in the fire. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the powerful, earth-shattering political forces of destruction and death. God is found inside. In the Christian tradition, we call it the still small voice, right? It's a phrase that's almost untranslatable into English, kol demadaka, right? The thin sound of silence, the sound of sheer silence. A silence that has a weightiness to it. A silence that is a sound. A silence that speaks to you. And in that silence, I could feel something shift inside me. Like many of you, I have been traumatized by the last 20 months. There have been days where I honestly wasn't sure that I wanted to make it through to the other side, much less that I could. I know that days like that will probably come back. We're not out of the woods yet. But in that moment, in that music, and then in that silence, I felt something shift in me. And for what felt like the first time in a long time, I thought, right, my body remembers this, and I got so used to it that I stopped paying attention. But this is what it feels like. This is what it feels like when healing starts. And I don't ever want to take that moment for granted ever again music and community, these, these liturgies, these texts, the, the ability to gather in a room like that. I mean, we have not had 80 singers in this space in two years. So we gather, right? We remember. We gather to mourn. There is no pussyfooting around it, right? We have lost a lot. Our loved ones have passed on. There are these ribbons outside. You see them fluttering in the breeze. We're doing more of them here. Uh, and if nothing else comes out of these days of death, these days of fear and trembling, these days of awe and wonder, if nothing else, I never again want to take for granted what it means to be able to gather with friends and with complete strangers in a room like this one, set apart for the healing of the nations, for ancient music and prayers and chants, set apart as a holy place, this, this reminder in wood and stone that God has always been just as close to me as my breath, as near to me as the sound of sheer silence that we experience in these spellbinding moments of art and music and theater. That's all the liturgy is, right? It's God's people gathering to sing and to act something out and to create beauty. All of that is prayer. That's how we begin to heal this city. This is the best we have to offer, and some days it feels like a pretty piddly offering in the context of the sheer magnitude of what our nation is facing right now. But this is what we have. These are the communities that we are rebuilding, Beth Israel, Trinity Cathedral, communities of faith dedicated to something that we say will outlive each one of us out of all of the chaos of our grief and our fear when we are finally reduced to silence, when we finally shut up long enough to let God talk to us. Ironically, both of our traditions maintain those are the moments where we discover that we are not alone. This is the moment when something shifts. This is the moment in which something begins to stir. This is the moment when, if we're paying attention, something new is born among us. This is the moment when, finally, 
after so much waiting, we begin to heal.